0: All right, hello and welcome back to the Rough Draft podcast. I'm your host today, Katie Putnam, and we're sitting down um, for National Children's Book Month or National Picture Book Month? Yeah, Picture Book Month. That's right. The second week of November was National Children's Book Week. But anyway, we are sitting down today with Dr. Rory Kraft, who is a philosophy professor here at YCP. And he he's doing a lot of research right now into um, Goodnight Moon and the author, Margaret Brown. Mar- Mar- Brown. Um, so could you talk a little about, little introduce to us the topic of that research?
1: Yeah, so it, it kind of, I come to this, I come to this in okay. a couple of different ways. Um, so I do a fair amount of work in... It goes by a couple of different names, but I, I tend to say philosophy with children. Um, sometimes it's philosophy with kids, sometimes it's pre-college philosophy, um, but the idea is that it should not be the case that the first exposure that we in the U.S. have to deeper philosophical thought is in your freshman year in college when you take an intro to philosophy class because it's assigned to you as part of gen ed and that we have really let down a lot of people when when we do that so this i have this this long history of working in that area and going into elementary schools high schools middle schools doing philosophy with them in different ways and so i was sort of primed to already think about the ways that people who are younger can do philosophy without understanding that they are doing philosophy and part of what the job of people like me is is to help them see how to actually do that philosophy in better more rigorous ways um largely by working with their teachers not by working directly with them because i can't go to every middle school classroom in the country um so it starts there that's like background information so where we pick up this story is like many families uh, nightly, we would read Good Night Moon by Margaret Weisbrow. And some of the people listening may be like, maybe that's familiar. Maybe it's not. It's a classic. The, it's a classic. The odds are if you have been born any time since 1940, you had this book read to you repeatedly. Um, so it starts out in a great green room, and it's, it's the story of this bunny going to sleep. And so it it starts out with an accounting of the things in the room, and then it turns into saying goodnight to all the things in the room and then fall asleep. And it's become a standard bedtime story for generations of Americans. Um, So like many families, we're doing the same thing. My oldest uh, was, she wouldn't fall asleep unless we read her Goodnight Moon. It was part of her routine. And we were traveling and foolishly I had not packed Good Night Moon. So we were uh, visiting my in-laws and we got from the library there a copy of Good Night Moon because every library is going to have a copy of Good Night Moon. But the copy that um, that we got was one that included an essay at the end talking about the history of the text. and. Um, I didn't read that part a lot at bedtime, but I read it right. myself. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And that led me to start thinking more about what's going on. So that that was the trigger that led me into looking more fully at that book and what's going on. And as it turns out, and the argument that I'm making in the project I've been working on for about a decade now, um, is that Margaret Wise Brown um, was doing cutting edge philosophy at the time. So she was writing books. I'd also say she's writing books with, because she worked very closely with children in writing her books, um, for children, but she was using what was then like brand new thoughts in philosophy and psychology, because psychology had just split up from philosophy at this point. We're talking the 1930s to, she, she dies in, uh, f- 52. Um, so, Psychology becomes its own discipline in the 1920s, and so until really in the th- late 50s, early 60s, you're still gonna find psychologists in philosophy departments. So all of the ideas that are prevalent in early 20th century, were st- stuff by like John Dewey, Maria Montessori, all of these sorts of aspects in, in educational theory, if you think about Montessori, um, Brown knew and purposefully was putting into her books. Um that's the beginning. Yeah. That's that's a long bit here, but that's the beginning.
0: No, yeah, that's super interesting. It's definitely something that we don't think about children's books as literature, and they are. Um I was reading um trying to prepare for this. Um um about the collection at Hollins College, um where I think you've been. Yeah,
1: Holland's is great.
0: Yeah, so like I guess it's cool to read, uh, like, how does reading through her, um, the letter she wrote, all of um, her correspondences, kind of reading about how um, these books of hers like developed, that, that tells you a lot about this, I suppose.
1: Yeah, so, so Brown got her degree, um, her bachelor's degree, at Hollins College, Gen, Virginia. It's an all-woman's school. Um, She actually is second generation Hollands. Her mom had gone to Hollands also. Uh, Brown's family, um, certainly on her mother's side, comes from like old Virginia money. Um, The dad's side is like New York banking money. Um, So Brown grew up um, moderately wealthy, um, richer than middle class. um, And she kind of had a a 'er ne'er-do-well moment. um, Coming out of high school, she didn't quite know what to do. They sent her to Switzerland to finishing school. And she did a year in Switzerland. Um, And while she's there, in her diary, at one point she writes, I have to go to Holland's. Um, And uh, so that's cool. I've held that in my my hands. Um, So she comes back. She goes to Holland's. And she is kind of a mediocre student. Um, More interested in social life and athletics than the classroom, but there were a couple of uh, professors she really loved, worked closely with. Um, So she graduates from Holland and wants to begin life as a writer, and she moves to New York. Um, And while in New York, she falls in with what's called the Bank Street School. We'll probably come back there. Um, And that's the beginning of of her writing uh, for kids' books. She did have one adult novel, which is horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Um, Thankfully unpublished, but it's horrible. Um, But she was amazingly prolific. In a very short period of time, um, she wrote a ton of what have become classics. Um, Basically in about a eight-year time period, she has something like 45 to 50 kids' books in print, wow. um, yeah. often using different pseudonyms. She'd use different pseudonyms for different publishers. Mm. So she was sometimes only competing with herself. Um, the books on the marketplace were her competing with, with others against her. Um, so in that time in New York, she is writing constantly. She also has a uh, summer retreat that she buys. The only property she ever owns is uh, this uh, in New England, you call it a camp. Um, uh, A cabin um, in the woods on Vinyl Haven, which is an island that's about a mile off the coast of Maine. And uh, there's still no power to the cabin. Um, And so she would go there in the summer. And w- and she had a, a writing studio there, so she wrote a ton of stuff that was not published. Some of it has been published more recently.
0: Right. Yeah, I read that a um, lot of like her sister.
1: Yeah, and there's there's a, a an intriguing story about what happened, but uh, most of those manuscripts, though not all of them in Holland. So this is back to your question, like, what is it like mm-hmm. to do that? Um, it's amazing. Like I said, I've held her diary in her hands. Actually, that's her diary is not at Holland's. Her diary is at, strangely, a uh, public library in Rhode Island, mm. um, just over the Connecticut line from um, from New London into in into Rhode Island. Um, so they have her diary and some other stuff. But in Holland's, they have all of these manuscripts, they have her handwritten notes that were keeping track of her expenses and, and what's going on. They have her death certificate. They have a copy of the telegram that her father was sent when she passed away. Um, they have all this sort of stuff there. And it's I've, I've been down to Holland's twice, each time for three or four days. Um, and I probably could go down for at least ten more days. Right, to really there's think still so stuff.
0: much more.
1: Um, there's so much stuff there and so much so many intriguing things because you see also like different multiple drafts of the same book and you see it pulling out and coming in different ways. Um, so there's that there, there's the, the stuff in Rhode Island um, and then at Yukon uh, in stores they have an amazing children's literature archive um, and they have some stuff there. Um, mostly from the work that she did as an editor. She was an editor for a long time with the William Scott Company. Um, So they have some of that there. Yale has some stuff, not much, but some stuff on her because Scott was a Yale alum, so a lot of his papers ended up there. And then um, University of Minnesota has a a big children's archive, and uh, there I've I've seen, I've held, I've touched the original paintings that are the plates of Goodnight Moon. Oh,
0: wow. Um,
1: so those are the places I've been. It's taken me all over. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out, particularly because Kurowski also has these interests, um, down at UMass, they have a great children's archives also. I just haven't been there because they have no connection to Brown. Oh. Um, but if you're interested in Curious George, they have a lot of good Curious George stuff down mm. in Mississippi. So, um, yeah. So that's, it's it really like, it's fascinating. You never know what you're gonna find. Um, really cool things, one-off things. There's these little like short one-pagers that she did for good housekeeping for a while <laughs> that mostly had not been collected, but as I was going through the archives, I was finding these things and sorting them. Um, I've worked pretty closely with the archivist down there and I, I've i shared with her for her own use the bibliography I'm, I've been building. of. Oh, of her publications and where they work because no one has really done that, even though there's been two decent biographies of her, um, and, and other aspects that she's because it's kids lit in part, it's just she's yeah. just not seen as a major figure. So, that stuff that we would expect to see in archives in terms of finding aids often I discover I, I did discover that I would be the first one to have looked at this stuff in. 15 years since the last person who wrote a biography looked at stuff um, and the biographies that have been written have understandably so come from people who are pop historians um, mm. so not, not at the
0: same angle that yeah so
1: not coming out from a, from a scholarly angle so when when I'm looking at at her story I'm looking at trying to track down things like can I find notes from a college class she was in that then tie tied to that? And I've looked and I haven't been able to find those. Um, but I have found letters um, where she talks to different people about what she's doing, why she's doing these things. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating. And she was keyed right into what was still a really young industry at that time. Um, when she's writing, we see this changeover occurring um, in what, children's books what picture books would be like how they would function how they would serve Um, and she was quite the controversial figure in that for for multiple reasons she was doing a different kind of children's book than say the adventures of peter rabbit Um, and the powers that be uh, really wanted to continue down the Peter rabbit root. Right. Um, and Don't want to take
0: any chances. Yeah,
1: and, and she was doing really odd things, um, challenging students, students, mm-hmm. ch- challenging three-year-olds <laughs> um, to, to do these things, asking them to do things, and in many ways challenging the parents to figure out how to read these books to their kids. Um, the, the best example I can give of that, like how do you read this, is there is a, a a series of books that she has uh, starts out with with Scott and then it goes to um, it goes on to, to two other publishers as it's sort of changing so it's kind of odd to think of it as a series but it, it follows the adventures of Muffin <laughs> and Muffin is this Scottish terrier um, uh, Margaret owns Scottish terriers and so modeled after her own dogs and. Uh, there's some great pictures of her with her dogs. Uh, she was gorgeous, and the dogs were good looking too. Um, I'll make
0: sure to post those. Yeah, <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll get you copies. <laughs> they're amazing. Um, I mean, she looks like a movie star, um, you know, a, a 1940s movie star. Like, that's how she comes across in these six. So she, she wrote these books about Muffin, and the first one's called The Noisy Book, um, and then it continues on from there. and They're all variants of, like, The Noisy Shore Book, aspects of that, and, and terrible, horrible things happen to Muffin that make it so that he can't see. Um, So he's like shut up in a box at one point. In another book, he gets a cinder in his eye from the coal. Like these things that he can't see. And the book is, the books are these sequences of and then Muffin heard a bang. What was that bang? Was that bang an elephant clopping down the street was it like in all these sort of aspects and to read those two kids you have to make sound effects and you have to like be engaged and you have to like read it like you're asking questions the way i just sort of pantomime it like was it an elephant clopping down the street um instead of just reading a story it's not like reading a mother goose rhyme where you just sort of read it, and it's the pattern, it's the rhythm that goes in, you you have to engage with it in ways that is unusual for the time period, I think still largely unusual today. Um, So that's an example of, of one of the innovations that she did, is these books that were really interactive, asking for the kids, asking for the parents, asking for the teachers to engage with the books, not just passively receive a story.
0: Right, because then you're engaging with the children more and yep. things, yeah.
1: And it, it ties back in some ways to, I, I said she worked at Bank, with Bank Street students, um, it ties back to how she learned to write for kids. Um, so Bank Street, uh, which still exists now, it's Bank Street College. It's no longer on Bank Street. Uh, it's north of um, Central Park now. Um, I've been there too, been to Bank Street. Um So Bank Street starts out as an experimental um, educational facility. Starts with like three-year-olds and even kind of in early days, it pretty quickly goes through primary school, maybe up to like fourth grade. Um, Now you can go to Bank Street, preschool through PhD. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't think anyone should go to one school (laughs) all the way through like that, but But you could. (laughs) Um, So Bank Street was this experimental school that was founded in part on the ideas of John Dewey's notion of education and uh, his notion of education, short version of it, is uh, learning by doing is really important.
0: Is this Dewey of the decimal
1: system? It is Dewey of the decimal (laughs) system. Um, Yes, he invented that. The other thing, this is really important, we all know john dewey invented the field trip oh, it, it, it we li- owe
0: him so much yes
1: <laughs> uh it it literally was he was working with students at a school in chicago and discovered that they were all city kids they had never really seen nature so he took them on a day trip out to the wilds of illinois to see nature so he literally it was a trip To the field,
0: Um.
1: (laughs) so that's this is the first field trip, and it it kind of also becomes a tradition there, and so the ideas like that get picked up by places at Bank Street where they're doing field trips with kids, and that's where it comes from. Um, But John Dewey, prominent American philosopher, um, psychologist, educational theorist, um, his ideas on learning is doing are used as Bank Street is starting up, and. Part of it is just this radical notion, you're not going to believe this, that we actually think that the kids at the school, that these three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, that they are people and they can think and have preferences. Um, So it's, it's working in and around those things. And so at Bank Street, they have this really novel educational project where they're working on, on developing these kids. Um, and then in the evenings, they have writer's workshops and they have people coming in, learning how to write basically curriculum for Bank Street so that the teachers there would have something to work with them. So they would they were reading educational theory, early psychology, the, the area of philosophy that's called epistemology, which is theory of knowledge. They were reading all of this stuff and integrating it into their work, this is where Brown first, you know, starts figuring out what to do with this. Um, and the approach that they take, it, it's the founder of Bank Street School is Lucy Sprague Mitchell. And Mitchell has uh, a couple of books that she came out with at the time. The second one actually Brown edited for her. Um, it's called The Here and Now. So it's the Here and Now approach. And the idea of Here and Now is that it is... Not fantasy, it's not fairy tales, it's not Peter Cottontail, it's this is your lived life. So the a here and now story, it's going to sound really boring here, but a here and now story would be something about like Johnny had a very full day, and then it was time for him to take a bath. and first he took the washcloth and washed his knees and like just sort of walking through and dries off and then goes to bed. Um, very little plot (laughs) Um, but the idea is like this is a sense of safety for kids like they understand what's going on they're real kids, they're not um, sort of images of kids they're not animals Um, and so this is here and now and Brown started writing stuff in the here and now style um, gets associated with them works with Mitchell through Bank Street gets in connection with with the Scott Company becomes their initial editor, edits and translates a bunch of early works um, that are are published, not always under her name. And um, then the other part that happened in this, the writer's lab is after they wrote stories, they would uh, basically what we would say storyboard them and they would take them into, like they they call it the fours, like they take them into the four-year-olds so they'd take them in the four-year-olds, and they would have, you know, big um, poster board sort of sketches of illustrations, and they would read the stories to the four-year-olds and see what they reacted to, what they didn't. It was like early market testing. Yeah. Um, so they did this to see what worked. And then the other thing that they would do, uh, and Brown was famous for doing it, they would just follow the kids around on the playground with a notebook, and just like write down the things that they were saying. And so the the children in these here and now, board, like they sound like real kids because they're often lines that kids actually said. Um, so Brown starts out there, that's how she starts learning how to write kids books. And then she ends up eventually rejecting part of the here and now-ness because she does feel that there is a place for fantasy and that there is a place of separation that goes on so she does end up using i mean good night moon so she's using rabbits there's right, a rabbit yeah. trilogy um it's good night moon um my world and I thought, oh, is the big red barn it's not a common <laughs> one uh the my world and, and good night moon are the two that most people have read the third one isn't as popular um so we we have these bunny books but her thought was that this would allow everyone to to associate with them, and it, so that it didn't then matter if it was a boy or a girl or aspects like that. Because if it's a rabbit, it's a rabbit. Um, Runaway Bunny is the other bunny book, but it's not really the same storyline. Um, and uh, so she does this, and I, there's a, a great letter that Mitchell sends her. Um, this is after Brown is like a huge success. Um, Mitchell sends her a letter and, and says, I wish she would stop writing those damn bunny books. <laughs> um, she didn't listen Yeah, kept, kept doing those.
0: Well, she was right, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that um, there is more scholarship of children's literature lately? Do you think you see that growing?
1: I, I do see more of it lately. I think that there's been an appreciation more recently of it. Um, if If I had to guess... I would I would say it's at least partially as boomers are in their late retirement phase. We're, we're seeing more work from older historians, older literature people that are probably working with their grandchildren, great-grandchildren at this point, coming to and thinking about these things. So we see those, and then the boomers themselves, um, you know, also... Having that reminiscence of like when they were reading to their kids in those yeah. aspects, so there's there's more kind of looking back. There's also a, I think, a greater appreciation now than certainly was the case in the 40s and 50s when Brown was writing, that these are actually worth thinking about. That they're not throwaway um, yeah. works. So uh, really, kind of profound things going on, and some of that is is also uh, probably. Geisel's work um, so Theodore Geisel dr. Seuss um, led to a uh, an understanding that there's a purposefulness um, I, I think most people know this I, I, I don't yeah. think that this is a, a, a random weird fact but um, so cat in the Hat one one of the very first dr. Seuss books um, was written because Geisel got a list of the 100 words that all children should know by the time they are age X, whatever X was. Oh,
0: I did not know that.
1: um, So the book is written using only those words. Um, And there's a couple of like the cat and hat style books that are like that where it's intended to do these things. They're in some way kind of here and now. It's like it's, it's everyday common words that you need to know and know for early readers. Um, this is the time where reading instruction was not phonics. It was whole word. So you learned to recognize the word and know what it was. So being able to differentiate cat from hat um, was important in ways that if, if you've grown up learning phonics, like how could you ever confuse those? But yeah, you could.
0: I've never thought about that that's the way they taught language yeah. before.
1: I mean, it was not really rote memorization, but it was kind of like that. Yeah. Um, and so Geisel had this whole approach. And so as Seuss has continued to be popular, um, it led more people to think about what he was doing. And pretty quickly, you can see like he was doing things for a reason. Um, Later Seuss books are, they're all themes. so you get the Butter Battle book that's really about nuclear war, yeah, snitches, ra- racial uh, understanding.
0: Yeah, I um, know like Horton Hears a Who I think is about minorities or something. Yeah. Because I know that people like to use it um, for pro-life things, and then his family estate has to come and say, stop that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the a person's a person no matter how small yeah. from often gets used in abortion discussion but that was not his intent and Geisel was really liberal um, yeah so it's I think that there's a way in which people are like oh there actually is something going on here and so then more people start looking at works to see what is happening um, and, and to be clear it's not not all works are like these deeply hugely important philosophical concepts like mm-hmm. um depending upon your raising you may or may not have had it but uh, there's a great golden book book called the pokey little puppy
0: oh yes yeah and I had
1: that I loved it <laughs> yeah, it's a good little story and it's this pokey little puppy who is slow and then doesn't get to come back for, for dinner and sadness and at the end there's a happy story um, it's a cute story it's a well illustrated story there's not a deeper message
0: yeah
1: um, that's it's just what it is there that's different from there's another golden book that the brown did the color kittens where it's two cats who are painters and the book is them painting things and so there's pages of like and then they tried this paint and like everything is blue on that page and next page, like brown, and everything's brown. I I always find that one's hilarious because I think she was talking about herself because of her oh, last name. Yeah. Um, but it goes, through, and then at the end they spill all the paint together as a rainbow effect. And um, so it is a cute story. It's a great story. If you don't remember reading it, you probably did, but you should go back and look it up. Um, but she's teaching color theory. <laughs> <She's>, oh, <laughs> right.
0: She, she's
1: she's telling you know, three year olds like, hey pay attention to the colors things are, this is one of the things you can abstract from things is colors. Things are red or green or blue. And she does it in a way that's not just like, here are red things. It's this cute little story about this dream that a kitten has of all the red things and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's realizing that some of these books are purposefully deeper than, than others.
0: Yeah. Um. To end on sort of a light note, do you remember your favorite children's book or one of your favorites?
1: So, I mean, I would, I would have to say, you know, now as an adult, I, I would have to go back to Brown. Um, I love Goodnight Moon for for lots of reasons. But if I think of stories from my own childhood, because I I don't remember Brown stories being read to me. Um, I know that they were, but I don't remember them because yeah. I was that young. Um, The story that I remember, which I now own the copy that my family had, um, was a Disney book called Button Soup. And it's a retelling of the traditional stone soup story where you you have someone starts out with a bucket of water with a a stone in it, and I can make a soup using only a stone. It's a button in the story. Um, And then like, oh, it'd be so much better if there were some carrots in there. And like they start adding things in. I love this book. It's Scrooge McDuck is the one that they're convincing <laughs> to actually do stuff, and it's Daisy Duck is the one that is her, his niece that's convincing him to, like, do all these things. And I just I love that book, and now I own the copy I had as a child.
0: Yeah. Um, I think one that sticks out to me from my childhood, and I think it was my mom's, or actually, no, I did have a few books that were my mom's, um, but one that I liked was called The Monster at the End of the Book. Oh, Grover. Yeah, yeah. with Grover. I just thought it was so cool how it, like, broke the fourth wall. Yep. Um,
1: you may not know that there's a more recent sequel.
0: Oh, what?
1: There, there's uh, maybe five, six years ago, maybe longer because I'm trying to think how old my kids are. Um, there's another monster at the end of the book, and this one is Elmo-based, sort of.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. But, yeah,
1: Grover, there's a monster in this book. It, it's dramatic.
0: Yeah, it's fun. Um, oh, the tragedy! Yeah, I just like I like the drama. I always liked Grover. It was one of my favorites on Sesame Street. But I could see how they would want to incorporate Elmo because he's probably more popular these yep. days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's good. Um. I feel like so often we like we just say, oh, children's books are so um that's easy to write, like whatever. But you know everything you just talked about shows how much thought is put into like, so many good children's books classics.
1: And and the thing, there's so many great stories that are sadly going out of print at different points. Um, so I'll give a plug for another Bank Street person that's not Brown. Um, so Ruth Krauss, a uh, great author. She actually she did some work with Brown. Um, and Krauss is married to Crockett Johnson, who is the Herald and the Purple Crayon author. Um, but Ruth Krauss has this great book called A Hole Is to Dig, and the book, which is Maurice Sendak's first illustration job, is a hole is to dig, is a series of like these odd ways that kids would think about the world, and uh, it's taken from the notes that Krauss took as she was following around the kids at Bank Street. So the the title a hole is to dig is that what's the purpose of a hole? Like why do we have a hole? Well, a hole is to dig. <laughs> Um, and so the illustrations from Sendak are, you know, kids digging holes and stuff. And there's another one that's like, buttons are to hold your coat together. Like, you know, that sort of sense. It's a great story. I used to give this story to all kinds of friends, family members for, like, baby shower stuff. Yeah. Um, after I started this project and discovered it. It's been out of print for a couple of years now, though. Mm. Um, but it's this great story, and it's early early Maurice Sendak. Everybody loves Where the Wild Things Are, but here's, like, his first work.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, and I know there's lots of good new stuff coming out that's more diverse and things like that, but there is a lot of uh, worth looking at the older stuff. Well, um, it was great having you here. Thank you. I learned a lot. I know I did. Um, So that will be the end of today's episode. So thank you for listening. That was Dr. Rory Kraft. Take his classes. Um, I took race, gender, sexuality with you. It was great. I recommend. Um... And that'll be it for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks.